0: Fire up your kilns, we're talking pottery, this week on The Backdrop. Hi everybody, this is Curtis, welcome to The Backdrop. This week we are looking at chapters 18 through 20 of Jeremiah where yes, there is a whole lot of pottery talk. Don't worry, we might talk about one or two other odds and ends from these chapters as well. And we are going to make a couple of detours into, into the book of Second Kings, so have a finger there as well so you can flip over to it a couple times if you are interested. But first, chapter 18 opens up with Jeremiah getting a message from God that he is to make his way down to a potter's workshop, and that God will give him a message there. The first thing I wondered about this passage is how exactly this message came to Jeremiah. We can only speculate of course, but did Jeremiah have like a standing time where he would listen for messages from God each day? Did this just come as a moment of inspiration while he was going about his daily business? Sometimes I think the most interesting parts of the stories in the Bible are the blank spaces because we just get the highlights in scripture usually. Even in the gospels where you have four whole books talking through the life of Jesus, There's still a whole lot else that happened in those three years that Jesus was doing his main ministry work that just don't show up even once. What were all these iconic figures doing in the rest of their daily lives? How did they relate to God during the downtime in between the big dramatic events that do get recorded in scripture? Whatever's going on for Jeremiah, it seems that he was listening to what God was saying, even in the mundane work of a potter shaping clay into a pot. So Jeremiah goes down to the potter's workshop, and you have to wonder how long he was just sitting there, watching as the potter makes a pot, sometimes is unhappy with what's taking shape and smashes it flat and starts over again, over and over and over. And you also have to wonder what the potter was thinking about this strange man just hovering there, like, um, what are you doing? You want to buy a jar or something? Nope, I'm just waiting for a message from God. Okay, then. And over time, the message begins to take shape. God tells Jeremiah that Israel is clay in the hands of the potter, God. Now, this would not be a surprising message necessarily. It certainly has resonance with the story of creation in Genesis 2, where God uses clay to form humanity. And a a very similar image appears in the book of Isaiah. So it's possible that this was not an entirely new idea in Jeremiah's mind, but anytime we come across a similar image in different parts of scripture, we want to do two things. First, to notice and see if what's going on in one passage might help us understand what's going on in the other. We've talked about one of those situations before on the backdrop, where Jesus condemns the temple in his day by quoting Jeremiah's words condemning the temple in Jeremiah's day. Jesus is intentionally importing meaning from Jeremiah's prophetic ministry to help his disciples to understand what's going on in front of their eyes. This thing that I'm doing is like that thing that you've read about since you were a little child. But the second thing we want to do is notice the differences between the situations because sometimes a later piece of scripture uses an earlier one, both to show what's similar and what's different. So Jeremiah predicts doom for the temple because of injustice and idolatry, and so does Jesus. Jesus wants to echo those same things in his own day. But then Jesus says that he will raise the temple up again in three days, meaning that his body will become the new temple. Jeremiah didn't say that. And the fact that Jeremiah didn't say anything like that, and then Jesus does, would have surprised the audience. It highlights an important part of of what Jesus was saying. The difference highlights something important. In any event, back to Jeremiah 18. This is the same image we find in Isaiah 45. And in Isaiah 45, the message is clear. You, Israel, questioning God, are like clay talking back to the potter, disagreeing about what the potter should or shouldn't be doing. It's absurd. God is in control and God will do what God wants to do, whether you like it or not. That's the message in Isaiah. But when we read how Jeremiah uses this message, it's for a very different purpose. Look at verse 6. Like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, Israel's household. There, God is in charge. Do what you're told, right? Well, verse 7. Momentarily, I may speak concerning a nation or kingdom about uprooting, demolishing, and destroying. But that nation concerning which I've spoken... May turn back from its evil. I may then relent about the exile that I intended to do to it. But momentarily, I may speak concerning a nation or kingdom about building or planting, and it may do what is evil in my eyes so as not to listen to my voice, and I may then relent about the good that I said I'd do to it. Jeremiah is not inspired by the control the potter exerts over the clay so much as the responsiveness of the potter to the clay. The potter begins shaping one pot, but then for whatever reason it isn't working out, and he changes course, making something different than he had originally intended, or starting over altogether. The potter isn't any less sovereign, really. He's still in control of what ultimately will happen, but what he decides to make happen might change based on the actions of the clay in his hands. That's a very different message than the one Isaiah was bringing with the same image, isn't it? It doesn't contradict what Isaiah says about God, but it does qualify it somewhat. Yes, there are times when God might say, I'm in charge. I've made up my mind. This is what's happening. Don't question me. But then Jeremiah would say there are also times when God is not less sovereign, but more responsive. And in fact, Walter Brueggemann coined the term "responsive sovereignty" to describe this quality of God's character. Responsive sovereignty. Brueggemann certainly argues, as do John Golden Gay and Christopher Wright. Incidentally, those are probably the three scholars I've found the most helpful in understanding the Book of Jeremiah through this series. All three argue that God is far more often responsively sovereign, like we find in this passage from Jeremiah then God is authoritatively sovereign like we find in Isaiah. I don't know why else God would allow God's dreams for the world to be derailed over and over again for thousands of years when one would think God could just make it happen. It seems that God's dreams include both the how of making things happen as well as the what of it. So both things are true about God in different situations. And at times God just makes things happen. Uninterested in the objections of the clay, And at other times, maybe more often, God is responsive to the clay. But then in the very next chapter, we get a different sort of pottery metaphor. Jeremiah brings a who's who of Jerusalem out to the garbage dump, the Ben Hinnom Canyon that we've come across before. He tells the people in verse 4 that they have filled the canyon with the blood of the innocent, a reference likely to the child sacrifice that was practiced there. In 2 Kings 23.10, we're told that Josiah the king, as part of his religious and political reforms, defiled the Topheth, that is, destroyed the pagan shrines, that was in the valley of Hinnom, where we are in this passage, so that no man would pass his son or his daughter through the fire to Molech. We've said before that Jeremiah is more or less a contemporary of Josiah. So either Jeremiah is in this chapter referring to historical practices in the valley that aren't currently happening, or Josiah's successors as king have rebuilt these horrific religious practices. And Jeremiah proclaims equally horrific judgment on the city because of these religious practices. He says in verse 7, I'll frustrate the plan of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. That is, whatever you were wanting, you were planning to happen because of doing these abominable things, it isn't going to work out that way for you. In fact, frustrate the plan in this verse is literally empty out the plan. So this is yet another play on words about idolatry. You do these terrible things as part of your worship of empty idols and I'll empty out the plans you've made. Then in verse 9, he says that as a result of the siege the city is going to suffer through, food will become so scarce that they will resort to eating their sons and daughters. Kind of like how they were sacrificing those sons and daughters to Molech. It's another instance of the consequences of the people's idolatry and injustice mirroring in a tragic way the idolatry and injustice itself. And before we think this is just some gross hyperbole that Jeremiah is engaging in just a shock, which yes, he does plenty of that. If you flip to second Kings chapter six, verses 24 to 31, you can read about an earlier siege in Israel's history during the days of Elisha, where exactly these sorts of things happened. The siege Jeremiah is warning of is recorded later in second Kings in chapter 25, in case you're interested. Through all this talk, Jeremiah has been carrying a large pottery jar with him, a jar which almost every single commentary I read found great delight in noting was called a bakbuk, presumably as an onomatopoeic name for the sound of the liquid guzzling out of the narrow neck, like bakbuk, 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 bakbuk. So there's that. And when he's done speaking, Jeremiah lifts the heavy jar, the bakbuk, over his head, and hurls it down to show how God is going to break Israel and Jerusalem in response to their actions. Israel's clay has hardened to the point of no return. They haven't listened, they haven't turned, and there is now no reshaping of God's plans. They will shatter. Now, just like the people responded to Moses, Isaiah, Jesus, and just about any of the other prophets, the people don't like to be told these things by Jeremiah and a man named Pasher who is in charge of the administration of the temple. He's a big deal. In other words, walks up to Jeremiah, strikes him across the face, has him beaten and put in the stocks in front of the temple. And when Jeremiah is set free, well, he apologizes profusely to Pasher for the inconvenience. Now, Just like Peter and John and Acts, who, after a similar run in with the temple authorities, tell the leaders, Sorry, but the message is the message, and we're not going to stop saying it, no matter what you do. Jeremiah likewise says to this man, Pasher, Yahweh has changed your name, Pasher. You're no longer Pasher. You are now terror is all around. Because Yahweh has said this Here am I, I'm going to give you terror, you and all your friends. Which is quite a thing to say to one of the most powerful men in the nation. And one interesting thing that some scholars have noted, the name pasher sounds awfully like the Aramaic word for fruitful all around. So it sounds pretty likely that Jeremiah is making another play on words. You aren't fruitful all around anymore, but instead you are terror all around. As a nerd, I think it's great how often God plays with words. But one added nerdy note here If this is the case, it's more than likely a reference to two ways fruitfulness show up as a concept in the Old Testament, both of which are foundational to who Israel is supposed to be. So first, humanity as a whole and Israel as God's chosen people are commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule over it in Genesis as part of the creation story. And then second, God promises Israel to give them a land, the promised land, which will be of unsurpassed fruitfulness, full of milk and honey. So Jeremiah is saying that what God is about to do, bringing terror to supplant fruitfulness is in some sense, both a reversal of God's covenant with the people of Israel as seen in having given them this promised land and a reversal of creation itself which are both themes that we've seen pop up in Jeremiah often. A reversal of the covenant and a reversal of creation, all in a one-word name change. And then in chapter 20, we get the aftermath of these pottery lessons. Jeremiah is devastated, understandably. He has prayed for the people, brought God's messages and warnings to them, begged them to turn around and repent so that God, the potter, might reshape them. And all he gets for it is that he is beaten, mocked, and thrown into the stocks and he's mad. Verse seven, you fooled me, Yahweh. I was foolish. You've taken hold of me and won. I become a laugh all the time. Everyone makes fun of me because every time I speak, I cry out. I proclaim violence and destruction because Yahweh's message has become for me insult and derision all the time. And when I said, I won't make mention of him, I won't speak in his name anymore. The words became in my spirit like a raging fire shut up in my bones and I was weary of holding it in. I couldn't. A couple notes on this chapter first, and this one is a little uncomfortable. Jeremiah's accusation against God in verse seven in Golden Gay's translation is, you have fooled me. Robert Alter and other translations make it, you enticed me. This word is one of a range of meanings that includes those two things, fooled, enticed, as well as you deceived me, you seduced me, even you raped me. Jeremiah is not mincing words here. And that last one, God, you've raped me, might make us uncomfortable. And most of the scholars I read on this were very squeamish about using it, saying basically, well, just because a word could mean something doesn't mean it always does mean that thing which is true. But here's the thing. The rest of the verse is you've taken hold of me and you've won. Or in other translations, you are stronger than I and you prevailed. And I don't know about you, but to me, those don't sound like the words of someone who feels like they have been fooled or deceived. You don't get fooled because someone is stronger than you, takes hold of you and prevails over you. And while it's certainly true that words mean more than one thing and not every meaning applies in any given context, we should be aware of the context and pick the meaning that fits best there. And it seems more than likely, given what else Jeremiah says here, that his accusation is, at least in part, I feel like you have raped me, God. And here's why I think it matters to point this out. Jeremiah is unbelievably faithful to God. He gets let out of the stocks for speaking God's words of judgment and immediately starts up again before he's even let out of the temple vicinity. And he gets mad enough at God to make an accusation like, you raped me, God. Maybe you've never been that mad at God before. Maybe you have. Jeremiah shows us beyond any doubt that we can mix yelling at God like that in verse 7 with faithfulness like we saw immediately before it, in verses three to six, with praise like we see immediately after it in verses 11 to 13, with despair like we see right after that in verse 14 and what follows. This is all in the same chapter. That matters. Life with God is not bland smiles and kind words all around. The life of a faithful follower of Jesus runs the whole gamut. And we shouldn't shy away from the uncomfortable words of Jeremiah in this chapter. Those words are a lifeline to us. When we are going through a season where we too find ourselves moving from anger to hope to praise to despair. Meredith mentioned Christopher Wright's point about this on Sunday. To go to God with your pain and anger is a form of praise. To go to God with your pain and anger is a form of praise. And not with the toned down version of your anger, all of it. A couple other quick notes on this chapter as we close things out. One, there's a bit of a question of what exactly Jeremiah is accusing God of. Is it that the prophecies that Jeremiah is bringing haven't come true and he's beginning to doubt that they will? Like he feels like God has given him a faulty or untrue message? Or is it that, understandably, I might say, after spending a night in the stocks after being beaten, he feels like God's promise to protect him from his enemies doesn't seem to be coming true? There are hints of both in the book. So it might be that both... Are eating away at Jeremiah. Second, the verses after verse 14 are very similar to the complaints of Job in Job chapter 3. And cursing the day he was born is interesting. Many scholars I saw pointed out that it's forbidden to curse your parents or to curse God. You can't do those things. So this is almost like the next best thing. I can't curse my parents for giving birth to me, but I can curse my birthday and I can curse the person who went out of the house with the birth announcement. Third, Jeremiah wishes he had been killed in the womb. But in chapter one, of course, we hear God saying that Jeremiah was called from the time he was in the womb. Jeremiah knows this. He wants to have circumvented the whole thing, having opted out from the very beginning. And then last, this is one of several places where Jeremiah's experience overlaps with that of other prophets throughout the history of God's people. Moses has very similar feelings in Numbers chapter 11. Jesus gets close to despair in the Garden of Gethsemane. It seems this is a common experience for God's prophets. And in each case, they keep going. Because God's word for Jeremiah is like a fire in his bones when he tries to hold it in. In the same way that courage isn't never being afraid, it's doing what you know you have to do, even though you are afraid. Faithfulness is not always feeling good about what God has asked you to do. It's the commitment to keep walking down the path that leads to life, even when it looks like death. Because even when that path does lead to death, which it does sometimes for those who follow Jesus, somehow, paradoxically, miraculously, redemptively, we know that we will find that life is on the other side, even so. Stories like these remind us that that has always been true for God's people in the past. And we can therefore trust that the same will be true in our own life. I think that's enough for these chapters. I hope you enjoyed the backdrop this week. We'd love to see you on Zoom this Sunday at 9 a.m. when we will look at chapters 21 and 22 of Jeremiah, and we'll talk a bit more about justice. There's a link on our website for that, PomonaValleyChurch.org, where you can also find a few questions for reflection and discussion for this podcast So hope to see you on Sunday. If not, I hope I will catch you on the backdrop next week. And until then, bye.